We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Giroud scores again. We'll discuss that and everything else that happened at Stamford Bridge on this edition of the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right, Olivier Giroud continued what is mostly a hot streak with another goal. Uh, we'll be excited to discuss that, and then maybe talk about what's playing in the local movie theaters, what you've seen on Netflix, and uh, what we're having for dinner tonight. So let me introduce the people who will be covering that topic and more. Uh, uh, Paul, you can find him on Twitter at Posing in My Pants. Hello, Paul. Woohoo! Yeah, that was a nice Giroud goal. Great, wasn't it? Great to see him get back on the score sheet. Love the guy. Super, yeah. Yeah, super so. Hey, what's on in the movies? Oh, man, there's so much. We'll get to that in a minute because the Oscar season is coming up. we got to talk about Manchester yeah, yeah. by the Sea. It'll be great. Uh, Tim is back. He came back just in time to discuss all the good, happy stuff that happened at the weekend, including Giroud's goal. Uh, Tim can be found on Twitter at Stilberto. You can read him on Ars blog, among other places. Tim, welcome back. Thank you very much. Great to see Giroud scoring again, right? Absolutely. Um, everyone loves a stoppage time winner, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, any, any, any late goal by the handsome French bastard cheers us all up, I think. So, I mean, we've covered most of what I had uh, written down about the game. Um, I've got to say, Elliot, I've yeah. got to say something on that. If he hadn't celebrated that bloody goal, we could have scored a couple more. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. But to be fair, to be fair, coming away from Stanford Bridge with a goal, um, I, yep. now I can't remember, did they score any? You know what? Let's work our way through the game and see what happened. Um, all kidding aside, it was another shit show. And in case you're keeping track, our last 33, 34 matches uh, overall against Spurs, Liverpool, United, City, and Chelsea, won six, drawn 15, lost 13. That's the kind of stuff that gives you Arsenal in crisis. And that's what we're really here to talk about, folks. It's Arsenal in crisis. That's right. Early February means the league is gone. The Champions League is about to be gone. At least it's something in the FA Cup. Can we Arsenal that up? We'll find out. But let's start with the beginning of the match. All right, so, Tim, I think it's interesting because 
you know, the manager gets a lot of stick. Some of it deserved, some of it not deserved. Ironically, I, I think he, he deserves a lot of credit for this because one of the things we'd been discussing in previous pods, and some of which you'd missed, but I, I know it was a sentiment you echoed, is that he had to get back to the more mobile front line. Now, he did that. He restored Alexis to center forward. But what really in, impressed me was that he went with a three-man midfield. He, he pulled a Wobi back into midfield. He made mm. that change after a lot of focus being on whether that two-man midfield was working. He moved Ozil out wide to the left. Were you surprised that he made those changes, and, and were you impressed that he, that he made that, that move, considering his uh, reputation for being a little bit um, persistent, shall we say, or stubborn when it comes to his, his setup? Um, I wasn't at all surprised by the front line. I fully expected him to go back with Alexis. Um, Giroud did get a knock um, against Watford. It happened right below where I sit. It happened in about the second minute, and he should have come off after that. But um, he tried to play on till, uh, till half time. So I, I thought that would give him um, the excuse he needed um, and that I think he was looking for. Uh, because as I've said before, I, I don't really think he wanted the confrontation of dropping Giroud. He wanted an identifiable reason and him not scoring us playing badly and him picking up a bit of a knock gave him every reason he needed. I was quite surprised, um, pleasantly surprised. I think you're, you're quite right to say, you know, playing Ozil out wide was a brave thing to do. And I'd actually, the weird thing is, I'd actually written about this before the Watford game Um I wrote my column for last week and the whole thing was about can we play Urzel in the centre in these games anymore? Um, but I shelved it because Ramsey got injured and I thought, well, he's got he's pretty much got no choice now. Yeah. So I was surprised by that one, him pulling Iwobi back into midfield and putting Urzel out left. And actually, the, we, we, we caused them a few problems doing that in the, in the opening few minutes, pressing them high up. We dispossessed them a couple of times deep in their own territory. And I really think those Chelsea centre-halves, apart from David Luiz, the other two aren't comfortable on the ball at all and do not like being pressed, as we saw. Um, but what happened, um, and, and I was kind of sat in the upper tier and had a really good vantage point of this, either in the, in like the attacking phase, I think that was absolutely the right thing to do to try and put Iwobi and Ozil over in that corner of the pitch kind of together so they could link up, but you've not got Ozil in the midfield, just kind of standing there doing nothing when we don't have the ball. The problem was when Pedro was breaking forward, um, they didn't either. There wasn't a clear instruction about who was supposed to be tracking him or the person that was given the instruction wasn't doing it because Pedro kept coming forward and nobody was tracking him. And Ozil and Iwobi kept looking at each other before eventually Iwobi runs over to him or Ozil kind of makes a half-assed jog back. And I was, I was thinking to myself, have they not been told? Were they just not listening? Or, you know, or has someone gone completely rogue here? Why, and Ozil... Alexis and Awobi had a big conversation about 20 minutes in. I think someone had gone down injured. Um, it wasn't Bellerin. It was, it was someone else after that. And they all had like a big conversation. Um, and this is the point where Ozil then came back into midfield and Awobi went out left, which I don't think was the right thing to do. But I think the argument was about who the hell is picking up Pedro 
um, on that right-hand side. And I mean, Tim, to me, just, it's just beggars belief that 25 minutes into the game, they didn't know. They, they either didn't have that instruction or one of them didn't listen. And it's uh, it's pretty lamentable, really, because the actual setup mm-hmm. was I, I agreed with. But again, it just comes down to what instructions are they being given, if any? Is is it possible, just quickly, that, that one of the problems is this is what happens when you have to change the system going into a big game because of injuries and poor performance and problems, mm. and all of a sudden you've been playing Giroud up front, now you're back to Alexis up front, and you've been playing a yeah. two-man midfield, and now you've taken the guy who's playing wide left and moved him into midfield, and the guy who's been playing this free role is now on the wing. And, you know, you don't want to be doing that on a short week of practice before a big no. away game. No, no, precisely. I think there probably is an element of that, but it was so rudimentary um, that it wasn't like uh, one of Ursula Wobi was looking around thinking, oh, yeah, I'm in this different position. They kept looking at each other, which made me think that one of them thought that they were that one was supposed to be doing the tracking, which which, tell, which just says to me that they didn't know. I think you make a good point, particularly about the centre-forward thing. You know, we've been looking for Alexis to come back for five, six weeks, and something that has been a real feature of the last couple of years, whenever we change striker, we change to someone completely different in style, and that means that when we change back again, it always takes two or three games for the guys who are meant to be serving the strikers to remember who they're actually who they're actually playing with, and it always takes a game or two, like when we have Walker up front, you know, they kept pumping long balls to him for a couple of games until they realised, oh, no, we're not playing with Giroud. And then you go back to Giroud and they stop doing that. And, you know, it just comes, we should have just done it much earlier. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, your point's well made. They don't really want to be doing that coming into a game like this. Well, and I think part of the problem, too, is consistency of performance. I, You know, the word automatisms has, has sort of become a, a trendy word in football now. And, and Arsene Banger's a big fan of it. And I just think... You know, you have this guy, Alexis, who happens to be playing striker about as well as anybody in the league, and you go away from him for a month, and then you come back to him in the biggest game of the season, arguably, and I think the expectation is that, what, he's just going to go back to playing striker as well as he was before you moved him out of that position, and that the team's going to go back to playing with a mobile front line as well as they did before you made the switch, and I think that it's only reasonable to expect that when you've just spent a month reverting to a, a target man, you know, a slow, immobile target man, and the, the system that's required to play with that kind of center forward, and you go back to, to moving Alexis up front, and then you make an additional change with respect to the guy who kind of always had a free roll behind him and a guy who's been playing on the wing, well, no, it's not going to be crystal clear to everybody how to play that way or hit form that way on three days of practice or whatever it winds up being, a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So... I think that is tough. I mean, Paul, the reality, though, is that it was clear he couldn't stick with what he had been doing. He did make the changes. And to be fair, before the opening goal, it was bearing some fruit. Were you encouraged, at least by the way we started the match? Yeah. um, I mean, even throughout the game, don't get me wrong. Clearly, Chelsea looked like the team who should win this game, uh, kind of at any slice through it after maybe the first 10 or so minutes. Um, but we had our chances. I mean, if you look at what they made of their chances, um, you know, we had chances as good as theirs when you add them up. They they kind of had a few chances and took two of them. We had a good four or five or six chances. Um, so 
I mean, they, t- know, they took three of them. I'm just going to correct you because in the age of alternate, hashtag alternate facts, I think it's important that we... we yeah, the, the third remember. goal doesn't count. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. That's in keeping with how facts are uh, accounted for these days anyway. So go for it. Yeah. It's like in the age of double agents. I think they just got confused. One of them was the other guy's inside mole, but the mole was inside the other. Anyway, so I, it doesn't really count. Who was inside but, of who? It, Check was inside of set. You know what? I don't want to know. Keep yeah. going. Well, it seems to me like you do. So, <laughs> you know, if we talk about the two real goals before we had a brain fart, they, uh, and again, don't get me wrong. I mean, Chelsea controlled this game. Um, we, you could say we fell into their trap in terms of how the game went. Um, but we had our chances. Had we been more effective, more deadly, uh, you would say the script could have gone differently. On the other hand, if they'd needed another chance and another goal, they probably would have dug one out of somewhere too. So um, there was, you know, if this were a one-off game, you'd say, I'd be saying, oh, but this, no, but that. But we've seen this story before. And at the end of the day, I don't think any neutral would say Chelsea looked like they were that trouble. I think I think the general consensus is, yes, we started really well. We pressed them up high. Uh, we made them look a little ragged at the back. But then that's kind of their strategy is to kind of draw you up. And they yeah. drew us up. Look, and well, that's, that's what I wanted to ask you. We, just, yeah. just real quick. Because, I mean, I was watching those first 20 minutes or so and thinking – this is encouraging. There are some encouraging yeah. signs here. There, there, there are green shoots of recovery from the kind of football we've seen, and we were in, in the match. And then I yeah. started to worry because there were a couple nearly moments where one ball from a wide yeah. position forward and they were in behind us, and we were saved by you know, a few last-ditch interventions or poor touches or whatever the case may be or a player missing the, the quick release. But it suddenly dawned on me, were we playing well and having our way in the match, or was this come into my web, said the spider to the fly? To what extent was Chelsea yeah. baiting us into the pattern that the game took on in the early part of the match? Well, uh, for a little while, I don't think they quite had the control of it that they wanted, uh, and we had our chances, but by and large, yeah, we were playing into their game. If you look at where the two goals come from, it's basically them forcing a turnover and then everybody springing forward as one. Um, so uh, it, it's it, it's that false um, uh, that, that false optimism you have where you suddenly realize this is how they came to play. I mean, it's a rope yeah. dope to some extent, right? I mean, it is you feel like you're landing blows, but they're they're blunt yeah. and then and they're betting on their execution being yeah. better than ours and their chances being better than ours and their chances in the end um were better than ours because they had more space we were more ragged at the back etc etc so they had the better chances and it was very it, they were kind of a bit leicester city 2015 2016 though ironically those were the the two games we won last season um in terms of sitting back and being deadly and taking their chances and and they were far more deadly i mean we you could count four or five chances where uh, had we been as effective as they were in our finishing yeah uh, or, or or a player had a special moment like hazard did then 
we had our chances to score goals. But you still, you got to take a step back and say, we've seen this movie before, and it really doesn't feel like at any stage they couldn't have won that game. Yeah, and, and I think that's fair. I mean, it's it's so tough to say because we were playing in a different way with a different style than we have been, and we were playing against a team that may have been set up to let us come on to them a little bit and then release their players, which is what it looked like. I mean, Tim, I want to get two quick points in here. The first is, in those early stages where it looked like we were having some success, were you alarmed at how quickly they were able to create sort of panic stations at the back with one or two long passes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, and actually, Chelsea were quite clever in the way they the way they did that. Um, I think Michael Cox wrote a really good piece yes. um, today about how they suck you over to one side of the pitch. Um, and then all of a sudden, um, and actually we've seen this a little bit before, so their first goal reminded me of, was it Bournemouth's first goal? Um, where Bellerin was kind of left mm. on his own and picked up a lot of the flack and... You know, we're susceptible to that tactic. I think by now it's obviously quite obvious with Etienne Capu um, kind of cutting through us. Um, Dembele did it for Spurs and Hazard. But the second goal was susceptible to people running at us, um, which I think Chelsea noted quite gleefully. But yes, it did kind of look like they sucked us in and were able to hit us on the counter. And a big part of that as well, I think, was we really, really missed... Um, Kazola and or Granite Jacker to kind of sit in that space next to the centre halves because I'm pretty sure that what happened was because we didn't really have a proper line breaking passer in there that the two centre halves were either told or they felt um, more responsibility to try and play those passes and in the end um, you know, they didn't do it very well, they were very hurried and I don't know whether that was the additional pressure or whether you know, Chelsea in N'Golo Kante. I mean, when you actually see him in the flesh, the amount of ground he covers is is not human. It's absolutely unreal. He's up and down constantly. And, and I think a mixture of those things. So I think maybe we were a little bit unfortunate not to have a player like that playing, but I, I do think Chelsea just sucked us in. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though they are slightly enthused by the start, I agree with Paul. There was a, there was no real point of the game where I thought, you know, we've got them here or we're going to, you know, they, they just basically left Azard and Costa up. And actually, to be fair, I think, I think we were okay with Costa, a bit like we were in the home game. Um, but we weren't with, with Eden Hazard. Um, we weren't with Pedro. We weren't tracking him properly. Um, I think both of Chelsea's wing-backs, Moses and Alonso, had a good day because they just kept sucking us over to one side of the pitch and then, you know, one long pass um, across the pitch and they had a guy in space or just a long pass out of defence and they had, you know, they had guys with with, with far too much green grass um, in behind. And it, t- Tim, can I say, um, although in many ways you can persuade yourself we were in the game they always mm. seem so much more sophisticated than us in their yeah. play didn't they yeah they had well yeah, they, they had an idea of how they wanted to play and they executed it i mean i'm sorry yeah. but like this is not the first time we've come up against a team that seemed very clearly instructed on how they wanted to play us and what they wanted to do to give us problems 
And mm. we didn't seem to have an answer to that. And that, that kind of leads me to the next question, Tim, and I'll stay with you just for a second, which is we start with, with Iwobi in midfield and Ozil on the left. And, you know, while I wouldn't say we were dominating the match or anything, there were, there were some decent signs, at least from what was going on there. What precipitated the change back? And do you think it was a mistake? Um, I think it probably was a mistake, yes, or at least, well, to me, the big mistake was Ozil and Awobi not sorting out um, who, tra- who, who was supposed runners. to be tracking back. Yeah, yeah. And, and I suppose, really, if you want to kind of go into the, you know, the long view of the game and the symbolic narrative part of it, it, it just kind of showed you maybe the sort of manager that is just leaving Arsene Wenger behind uh, because Conte doesn't leave us didn't leave a single detail um you know unexplored and while i don't want to say you know oh because he got up and was ranting and raving on the touchline and pointing and stuff you know i I don't want to go down that oh he showed passion route but the fact that he does that means it's oh sorry it doesn't mean it's because he is obsessed with the small details of the game and we didn't even have the basic details worked out. And that's, you know, that's where it really felt like Groundhog Day. So even if our setup at the beginning was a bit different and interesting and on paper looked quite correct, the actual execution of it just wasn't there. And, you know, you've got to wonder why that is, whether the instructions just weren't clear enough, whether the players just weren't really motivated enough, whether it comes down to the intangible mental side and all of that. I don't really know. But, um, yeah, I do think it was a mistake swapping over because, you know, then once Ozil's in midfield, they're pretty much just walking the ball through. Um, and actually, Alexis was quite culpable at that point as well, which is so disappointing. When There's we saw a pretty in the unflattering game. video of Chelsea, yes. Chelsea just wa- walking just the ball between through. the two of them and at the midway stripe, and it's, it yeah, doesn't make for pleasant think, viewing. I mean, I think, I think because so against when Chelsea lost to Tottenham, Tottenham put Deli Ali in that space that we put Özil because you know Tottenham worked out that that's the one area of potential weakness. But the other potential area of weakness, we saw it at the Emirates. We saw that not all their centre-halves are are comfortable on the ball. And I know they've changed their system and they've got three at the back now. But the defenders are still the same. Um, Those three centre-halves all started at the Emirates. Um, So, you know, we we know that they've got a bit of a weakness there. and And in the first couple of minutes, we looked like we might be able to capitalise on it. But then... I think once we made the change, um, that didn't really happen anymore. And, and, you know, maybe that's why we had so much trouble tracking down the right-hand side um, in the initial, kind of in the initial 20 minutes, because perhaps the instructions were to push up really high. And then once you get past that press, what do you do? Um, but it, it was just, I don't know, it, it, it just... It had an inevitability about it, really. It just felt like we were at arm's length throughout pretty much the whole game. And in terms of individual performances, there's only one, really. We'll get to it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's coming. Um, Look, I don't want to go too far down hashtag narrative street, but like it it is telling, I think, on the day that we, we faced a team that we delivered 
a heavy, we, we, we delivered a heavy defeat to them on our ground and their manager made a change that transformed their season. And here we were, you know, going to their ground and the manager made a change that lasted 20 minutes and didn't have the desired impact. And it just seems that Arsene Wenger hasn't figured out what to do with this side to coax the performance out of them or get the tactics needed to consistently produce results. And ultimately, it's title over. And we'll, we'll, we'll come to the, the hemming and hawing over our season towards the tail end of the podcast, but I want to stick with, with the big moments of the game. And obviously, the first goal is as big a moment as they come. You know, if you listen to the Arscast and the Arscast Extra, a fantastic podcast, obviously, and, and James and Andrew uh, covered the foul on Bellerin extensively uh, in the Arscast Extra. And, and I would say that unless you guys have any disagreement with this, we're all going to agree it was a foul. We're all going to agree it was potentially even a cardable offense and that the goal shouldn't yeah. have stood. I don't the know. Only, yeah. Sorry, the only thing very quickly I'd say in response to that, yes, absolutely. Um, but at the time, and I was quite close to it at the time, I, I hadn't spotted the foul at all. So I, I kind of understand why the referee didn't. Certainly nobody around me was shouting foul. I think that's yeah, fair same enough. same here. Uh, and on the replays, the, the same with me. Not so much that I didn't spot the foul as... Uh, I'd more say I didn't spot the foul because it felt like he powered the ball in. Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, uh, and you look at the players around, not one of them raises a hand, not even Czech, who would have had a, maybe he had other things on his mind. But no no player puts up their hand for the foul. So I, I, think, uh, I, the, I think it's a foul, but it's almost like it's incidental. The not, problem is expectation to too, right? If yeah. that's if that's done to the keeper, it's called a foul just because any contact with the keeper, the, the referee is going to have it in their mind to call it. I think when you see Alonso go up with Bellerin, your first thought is Alonso should be winning this. And I think the referee is probably guilty of making the assumption that Alonso, with height and, and having the advantage from where he took off, was going to win the ball. And probably that that he brought that expectation into the way he viewed what happened but look it it's missed it's definitely a foul and it shouldn't be a goal but all of that having been said i think what happens from there is pretty much a disgrace so i'd rather move on to the second goal and paul i'll let you take the first swing at it if you just freeze frame from when costa wins the header there is absolutely no excuse in the world why that should result in a goal there are plenty of arsenal players behind the ball there is one Chelsea runner. There is no one for him to give it to. Half the people are strolling strolling back. There is, there is no sense that they know how to deal with this situation, and it is terrifyingly similar to the goal we conceded uh, against Watford. How do you explain how that position, from the time Costa wins that header, turns into a goal? Uh, well... I'll take the maybe not terribly popular view that that Eden Hazard is the player that Arsene Wenger says he most regrets not having bought over the last few years. Um, he's a phenomenal player. He also has fucking lead in his arse. So when you bump off him, you bump off him. He doesn't bump off you. And that was Coquelin underestimated what he was up against. Also, don't think Coquelin's fully fit. He has his hamstring issues yes he's playing well you don't have to be fit to grab a fistful of his shirt 
You know, you don't, you so, don't have to. I mean, exactly right. There's a so, lot of cynical ways to stop that from being a goal. And to be fair to yeah. Coughlin, who I think did a poor job on the play, once Coughlin yeah. gets shaken off, it still doesn't have to be a goal yeah, from he's there. Sti- he's still got two, two center backs between him and the goalkeeper. And I know we're going to be but, praising Oxley chamberlain later in this podcast, but I really did watch that again, and he is strolling. I'm watching it now. Yeah, I've got the old arsenalist.com, and he is jogging. And he's checking over his shoulder to see where the, the fullback is coming in, and uh, Gabrielle's coming in with the fullback. But, yeah, he's jogging back. Koscielny uh, needed to show Hazard to the outside. And as uh, they, they said on the breakdown, you know, he needed to make the – the tackle early because once Hazard has you in the box, you're fucked. And, well, because he's got uh, those know, tricky feet and you can't bring him down. You can't. Get he's just too him. fucking good. He's he's. It's kind of like when you're trying to catch a fly. You know, in the early days of a fly's life, before the fourth or fifth day, when he's slowing down and you might be able to grab him, they're just too fucking fast. He's he's operating at a a speed of reaction that your average center back or even a top center back he's just going to twist you into a pretzel so doesn't it bother you though that we can concede a similar goal against Watford and like there's nothing that happens in the intervening three days where they say like hey if this situation develops again you know, do this or do that or do this take differently the fucker down yeah take the fucker down that was the bit really the big mistake was Cockland should have taken him down and then Koscielny shouldn't have been backed in yeah so I- I just thought it was it was so emblematic of what's wrong at the club in so many ways because it's a key moment where no one's showing the intelligence or the awareness that's necessary Great. to handle the situation because, yes, these are talented footballers, but it takes more than talent at that level, and there's just no... We're an attacking team. Yeah. Uh, uh, Gary Neville was talking about this, and when you look at this, we defended like an attacking team. Not that we don't have skills, not that we kind of aren't standing in the right position, but a, a team that has a defensive mind knows to snuff that fucking thing out before Hazard gets going. Yeah, you look, know, Chelsea would have fucking decked us. It, as, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be rocket science. It just happened to no. you on Tuesday. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, but it's in your DNA. I think uh, you know. Who's been drilling into Kakala? I'm not saying it's never. I'm, so, been I'm sorry, but Kakala's only sense. reason to be on the pitch is his aggressiveness, right? I mean, yeah, well, his aggressiveness, but believe it or not, they use him in a very attacking way. Well, I, mean, I how, get it, but attacking in the sense of what's he doing in the ball recovery? Put him into the final third half the time. No, but I get it. But so, it, we do it for ball recoveries, for tackles, for interception. You know, not yeah, not for his technique defense. on the ball. Yeah, we use them for honest defense. There's uh, Wenger complaining about players going to ground and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We're not, we're not a very cynically defensive. I don't mean in the most negative way. We just don't have that negative defensive mentality uh, that says, that sees danger for what it is. You know who we does? danger. We, we didn't see it for what it is. Shaka. <laughs> he does. Yeah. He has that in spades. Um, Tim... I mean, I'll let you weigh in really quickly on that goal and your thoughts on it, but I want to get to what happened after that. So do you have any quick thoughts on how it is we, we turn what should have been a routine situation in the attacking half into uh, a goal conceded at our end? Um, I don't think I have anything to add there. No, I think, I think you, between you kind of um, got it right. Arsenal just don't take that side of the game seriously enough, mm-hmm. um, basically, and we've seen it time and time again, and I'm sure we'll be treated to it a few times yet. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, hey, if 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 you want to see Bellerin running eighty yards at the speed of a cheetah making a last second tackle, we can do that. But preventing that from being necessary isn't exactly our strong suit. Um, so what I want to get to is what happened after that, because in my mind, from that moment on, this team quit. The heads went down. They knew they weren't coming back, and they quit. You want to defend them as having not quit, or is that what you saw? No, that's that's pretty much what I saw. Whether that was down to, um, I don't know. Whether they just they were that they didn't think a draw was of much use, which um, would be the wrong way to think. If that's what they were thinking. I mean, to be quite honest, I was coming into this game. I probably would have taken a draw, just because I think I was pretty much. Um, most of the way to giving up on the title anyway, and the top four is going to be so tight. What's wrong with getting a draw away to a fantastic team that's running away with the league? Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't turn my nose up at that. It may not no, win no. you the title, but you can walk away with some credit. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And, and the feeling might have been a bit better, and I think we'd have all known that the league would have been done. But, you know, like I say, every point's going to count for the top four. And um, I, t- I tell you, when you can tell that a lot of players have, have really chucked it in. And I would include, you know, our two best players in that. I think Urzel and Alexis both completely chucked in the towel. And uh, this is one of the reasons that, sorry, they're not too good for Arsenal. They're at Arsenal because Arsenal is their level. Um, so I really wish people would stop with this bedwetting rubbish about them being too good for us because um, you saw why they're not. Um but when you see someone like Danny Welbeck come on and not do anything absolutely amazing or outlandish, he just added a little bit of energy. He tried. And, <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and when you have a player that does that, it really, really sticks out that the other players aren't doing it. And immediately, you know, Welbeck, again, you know, I'm not saying he came on and made an amazing difference and was brilliant, but just by, you know, doing a little bit of running <laughs> he, he you know he just he stuck out so much and that that shouldn't be happening that really shouldn't be happening particularly when you know we we have put together um some decent comebacks this year and i know it's a much much different uh, kettle of fish at Stamford bridge and i don't know maybe because may you know for all the talk of the kind of mental block at old trafford which i think is pretty clear we have um, we have at times 10 at Stamford Bridge, and that, that really seemed to come through. That they just thought, well, this is to shit. This is just the same old story that we always see. I think we've lost seven of our last eight at Stamford Bridge. Like, we don't even draw there. Um, I don't think there's been a draw there for something like 11 years. Um, we pretty much always lose with two you, exceptions. You know they say before the game it's only Arsenal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they probably do. And uh, yeah, they just, they seem to have a game plan which they complete. And, and this is something I did write about this week that actually what Conte's done really, really well is he's given them belief in that game plan. So when it finally didn't work against Spurs, there's important like future proofing went on. So they knew when they lost to Spurs, they just went, OK, we lost at White Hart Lane. It's a difficult place to go. They're a difficult team to play but we know this system and you know your jobs. And, um, you know, so so one of the kind of arguments we've been having with a few people 
um, over the last couple of days on social media is you know I think this is a fantastic squad that Arsenal have. I think it's really good. I think it might not be the best starting eleven in the league. I think it's the best squad in the league, and that doesn't give the manager much hiding place. And lots of people have kind of come back and said, "Oh no, this player's not brilliant. This player's not amazing." To which I'm kind of <laughs> saying, "Well, is." Is Pedro amazing? Is Marcos Alonso amazing? Is Gary Cahill amazing? Is Victor Moses world-class? Are these incredible players? Not really. Not to mention that in August, I'm sure those same people were saying all of those, all of our guys were incredible. You know, they're, yeah, they're not yeah. great now with the benefit of hindsight that we're 12 points adrift. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And Chelsea, you know, Chelsea don't have like 11 world-class players. No, like no team has that. Or, well... Yeah, pretty much no team has that. Who, Probably, who are you know, Chelsea's two Cup, best players? Costa and Hazard? Well, Costa and Hazard, are they exactly. Be- are they better than Ozil and Alexis? Definitively? They're, they're, about, they're about on par, aren't they? Okay, and, the rest, and the rest of the, of the crew is, is comparable? Yeah. yeah. But but they do, they have a system that works, they have defined roles, and they will pull together and believe in it. And I just think the thing is, over the last three years, so this Arsenal squad has actually been together a little bit longer than you think. And squad cycles tend to go in about somewhere between three to five years. And I see this Arsenal team, if we're being generous, as being at least two years into its cycle. And we don't have a clear idea of what it does or who, who, like who does what. Basically, I think I, I read a decent piece today that just said Arsenal have no USP. They they're not the best at anything in the league. In any metric you look, any of uh, the metrics you look at, they do not excel in everything. They're about fourth best at everything: defending, attacking, the amount of shots on goal, pass completion. Like we're a couple of years into this squad cycle, and there's still no identity to this team, it still just kind of looks like let's put them in this kind of shape and hope that Ursula or Alexis does something. And um, For fuck's know, sake, we're going away to Stamford Bridge playing a formation we haven't used all season. I would say that's pretty damning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this, this is a squad that's been together long enough that there really should be a clear identity and people really should know what they're doing. And and yet, do we do we know what our best team is? If if we were playing like the Champions League final tomorrow, and everyone was fit, does the manager know who he'd pick? No, no way, no way. And I'll but, t- I'll go further than that. I'll say that it is galling to me that we we haven't had consistently a setup. That, and I realize injuries change things, and losing Santi changed maybe the way we played. And but you know. And we've hit on this, all three of us, including Clive when he came onto the podcast and others as well. You can't go from having Alexis Sanchez as your center forward for three months and then go to Olivier Giroud and then go back to Alexis Sanchez and expect the team to understand how to play consistently because those are not those identities are polar opposites. They they are not consistent with one another. And I just don't think, you know, and, and by the way, I'm not exonerating the players who did quit out on that Stanford Bridge pitch. I am not exonerating the players who were who were god awful on the day and we'll get to them individually momentarily. Paul, um, before I decide to get on my high horse, it sounded like you had something to add. Yeah, uh, you know, I'd argue against, I, I have my nerves jangling to argue against him uh, in the sense, you know, best squad in the league. Uh, you know, he might be right. 
Um, the one area our Achilles heel is not because of individual personnel, it's because of combinations. We have nothing like a uh, top-level midfield. Um, it doesn't change the, the basic criticism, and maybe that's Tim's very point, which is we have the personnel, we haven't worked out how to use them. Uh, similarly, on the, you know, the, the changing the formations, I don't think it's so terrible to change the formation significantly in the front three. Um, and I would have been fine with this if you have a, an intel- intelligent, classy midfield who knows how to pull the strings. But when one of them's Coquelin, who has its strength, his strengths, but that ain't it, and one of them's Oxlade-Chamberlain, who I think did great, but he's, he's like, hi, I'm the new guy on the job. You know, I've worked out half of what this job is, and I can do that quite well. Um, you can't switch formations and personnel uh, and the subtle variations. So I, my overall point is the midfield. And it was an issue last year. Probably you could say an issue the year before. And it didn't get fixed over the summer. And yeah, Santi, but the manager must have seen it coming that he'd lose Santi for a chunk of the year and potentially for a big chunk of the year. So there's no real, there's no real hiding places. Yeah. Paul, at the end of the day, the midfield. I, I don't disagree with you. I think the midfield is a shambles. And I, I think it begs the question, you know, why, despite it being his decision, we let Jack Wilshire go. And I think it begs certain other questions too. And, and let me ask you this. I mean, look, I know, I know you've got a lot of time for Francis Coughlin, and I think there are things that Francis Coughlin does well. Now, I would suggest that there are limitations to Conte's game that are similar to the limitations in Coughlin's game, and Chelsea used Conte incredibly well, and Coughlin is problematic for us. Now, I, I don't know that Coughlin is the smartest midfielder in the world, and I, I point to their second goal. When Costa wins that header, Coughlin's first move is two aggressive steps forward to no one. He's not near anyone with the ball. He's not near anyone who's going to make a run. He just... It's been told to him, go intercept, go recover, go win the ball. When he does it, it's eye-catching. And people say, look at that ball recovery. Look at the number of tackles he makes. Look at the interceptions. When it doesn't work, he's leaving Mustafi and Koscielny on an absolute island. And that's what he did in this case. And because of those two steps forward, he's not in a position to properly uh, harry and, and tackle or shuffle or obstruct or pull down hazard and and the goal comes from that paul do you think that one of the reasons Coughlin is so effective at those ball recoveries is because he literally tries for them all the time it's kind of like you know it's like aaron ramsey he probably has the highest success rate in the league of back heels because he tries so damn many of them and most of them are shit like is Coughlin a case of a guy who just has decided that his first three steps are always going to be to run aggressively at the guy in front of him or the open space in front of him, and when it doesn't work, it's a disaster? Uh, yeah. He needs an intelligent partner, and and he, no slide on, on Oxlade-Chamberlain. You can only expect so much from him, uh, and I don't think he's ever going to be that partner for Coughlin. Well, what did you make of um, Coughlin's performance overall? I mean, I mean, because to me, it seems like uh, I'll even concede he had some good games for us this season, but I feel like that level has been declining, and the last two are particularly notable. Yeah, well, he, I mean, let's let's give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, which is, I mean, he 
he didn't play one of the games because he had hamstring trouble. And from what I understand, he still has a niggle there. So he may not be feeling very confident in his body and may not be at full full uh, full warp speed. Um, I think, uh, I mean, he hasn't been great the last few games. Um, I think when you compare him to Conte, I think, sorry, I don't see much that Conte has a weakness in. I think... He's I don't think he's good on the strong. ball. I, I just don't think he's a particularly I do. sophisticated I think he's passer. Good. I think he's a very good passer. I, I always hear that criticism, and then I I look out for the next game, and he's he moves that ball really well and really quickly. And I think some of his his passing is is has a little bit of vision, a little bit of insight. Insight. I think he's. I don't see what's wrong. I've heard it a lot. So well, well let's put uh, it this way: he's not. You wouldn't put passing as his chief quality, and I guess my point is that Chelsea he has are... no weaknesses, though. Yeah, all right. No, well, to well, me. So then, what do we do I with the Francis Coughlin? I mean, if if we're going to be defensive tire fires, which we've kind of become, and if Coughlin's penchant for stepping up to win yeah. the ball is is great, but his penchant for stepping up is also costing us acres of green space behind him at times. Can we yeah. continue to play with someone whose variance? Is that, no. you know, I mean, because he, he's not adding enough in possession. So yeah. can, is, is it getting he to the point where he's got to be moved players. out of the squad? Yeah, he only works with certain players, and we have enough of that already. What we needed... Gold, Goldilocks guys. We have too many Goldilocks guys. and it, but, but isn't yeah. that in part down to the manager? I mean, like, you know, the one yep. thing... Think about this. Moses. Moses is a great example. I forgot he played for Chelsea going into this season. Yeah. The manager found a role for him that he excels at. Why aren't we, you know, we can't find a role for fucking Aaron Ramsey. Aaron Ramsey is twice the footballer Moses is. And I'm hearing people listening to this pod screaming, no, Aaron Ramsey's shit. He's not shit. Why can't we, why can Chelsea make because Moses Aaron a Ramsey key role, but we can't? Fit. All right, but, but I guess my point is like, why can't we fit the pieces together in ways that complement all of their many talents in the way that we see other managers doing it with, yeah, I mean, you've got Milner doing, and I know Liverpool on the slide right now, but you got Milner doing well at, at fullback and Moses doing well as a wingback, but we can't, we can't find roles for guys like Aaron Ramsey. I think it's because the manager clearly doesn't have a concept for what Arson's midfield looks like in 20, yeah. 2008 to 2016. He doesn't have a concept and you'll hear it in things he says about, you know, he's looking for a DM like an Emmanuel Petit, but he doesn't buy a DM like Emmanuel Petit. Or, he, you know, how highly he rated Silva. Well, he didn't buy him. Or Gilberto. Well, he didn't buy him. Um, he, he kind of buys, you know, El Nenny. Uh, you know, what is an El Nenny? What is a Chaka? I, I think I've worked out what an El Nenny is, but was that what we needed? Uh, Chaka... I rate really highly, but again, he's an in-between player. And even when you listen to the manager's descriptions, he's still working out what he is. And, you know, from what I can tell, we scouted Chaka for a long time. We knew who he was. I mean, we did scout him. They had all the stats. Uh, they had the stat DNA guys working on him. They, they knew who he was. And if we didn't after that, then we never will. But maybe the manager still... You know, he likes all that stuff. But at the end of the day, until he's felt 
the material in his own hands, does he really know what kind of player he has? And it all smacks of a manager who doesn't have a clear blueprint for what a midfield uh, should look like. And maybe it's because he doesn't think that's how a midfield is formed. But yeah. when you, I, I, I'll tell you this about Conte. For all the desire I have to hate him for all sorts of reasons, I can't but respect a manager who comes in and says, yeah, I'm going to live with this squad, just like Klopp did. I'm going to live with these guys for a while because I believe in the system, the way we play. Uh, and to be fair to Conte, he didn't even go with his system. He went with their system for a while. Um, but he basically took that squad and said, I'm going to see what can be made of this and turned it into an absolutely killer team that pretty much can't be beaten and pretty much can beat anybody else. I mean, it's fucking phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I don't think there's shame in losing at Chelsea when they're in the forum they are and running away with the league. But I think there's so many problematic elements of, of this squad and what's happening with the squad right now. Tim, I want to give you a chance to wax poetic a little bit about Ox in a second, but just quickly on Coughlin, mm. here's <clears throat> what I see. I see a guy who steps up, they pass it wide, he steps up and creates acres of space behind him, then they come back into the middle to the space he vacated. Um, it's not that hard to suss out how to play your way around what Coughlin's doing, especially when there's no coordinated press by anyone else in the team. You can't have one of your two central midfielders pressing and no one else doing it. Is this a player who just doesn't have a role in the squad anymore? Uh, maybe without Cazorla, no, um, because I, I'm not convinced he really fits with anyone else. I think if you're looking to do a good defensive job, then maybe Coquelin and Elneny you mean does that deep. for you. If, you. Use him as a shield more. Yeah, yeah. If you're looking for a draw away somewhere, they might tighten things up for you. But I think Coquelin's probably got a similar problem to Ramsey in that um, there's really only one player he really, really seems to fit with. And like you say, this this whole decoy thing, um, it, it probably works for a little while. But like you say, it's not difficult to work out. It's not difficult to just say, well, do you know what? Um, they never pass to him. And even if they do, we, we don't have an awful lot to worry about. So we'll just stop following him, quite frankly. There was no one within five yards of him at any point in the game. It was crazy. No, no, precisely. And, and also... When you think about, like I said earlier, about the centre-halves and their distribution, and it was clearly, I think, whether by accident or design, it was just because um, they weren't, they didn't have the option um, to pass to. And yeah, it, it's, it just doesn't look like it really works um, for me with, without Cazorla. Even with Cazorla, there are some flaws in that. It's, it's not the best midfield combination. It's the best we have or it's the best we've seen. Um, I still think Jacker and Ramsey has some, you know, it, it is interesting to at least look at and persevere with for a little while to see how that works out. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, it is getting to that stage. And really when you look at, you know, what's Francis Coquelin's, you know, USP as it were, when he signed his new contract, Wenger spoke about his defensive numbers, how quickly he releases the ball, you know, the tackling, the defensive side of the game. And you look at two of the goals we've conceded this week um, to, well, it was Troy Deeney who scored in the end, but the Kapu run, the Hazard run. If, if Coquelin's not stopping that, and, and of course he conceded a penalty against Burnley as well, um, if Coquelin's not stopping that, then what's he doing that's, yeah. that's really <laughs> exactly. of, of any use? 
to be quite honest. And I, you know, I don't want to dig him out like that because he can be useful in certain situations. But you know, it's it's clearly been a pretty bad week for him in that respect. And if if he's getting brushed off by Hazard like that, and you know, the reason that the manager says he plays him is because he's the only one that gives us defensive balance, then you know, we've got a bit of a problem, really. Yeah, I would say so. And I, I mean, it's just so obvious now. Because Look, if we were an aggressive pressing team with a coordinated press, having a player like him who can do that as well as anyone is a value. But when he's the only one doing it, you can just tic-tac-toe your way around it. And there's acres of grass behind him, especially with the two-man yeah, yeah. midfield. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm sorry. It just doesn't seem to work anymore. And to your point, if if his strength is defense and that's what we're getting from him, then you know his offensive his attacking liabilities more than outweigh that for me. Now, Oxley Chamberlain's a guy I was critical of immediately following the match, and in retrospect, having watched the highlights and a little bit of the match again, I think I definitely got that wrong. I think I was very heavily influenced by the frustration I had with what I still believe was a lack of effort on their second goal to chase back. Um, and look. That's in Ox's locker. We know that. But that doesn't invalidate yeah. the good work he did. So I want to ask you about Oxlade Chamberlain, and then I want to come on to how we wound up with Ox in midfield because I have a point to make about that. But why don't you tell me what you thought of his performance and what in particular you thought he added that maybe he's been missing or was missing on the day? Um, so, well, his numbers point to it quite nicely. I think I'm right in saying he passed the ball more often and more accurately than anyone else on the pitch. Um, he had, you know, his, his, I think he had the most ball recoveries, um, most interceptions in the Arsenal team. I thought there was a point between Chelsea's first and second goal where he was our best defender, which, um, which really worried me, quite frankly. <laughs> Because you put Oxlade Chamberlain in the team for a number of reasons, then you don't really expect him to be your best defender. Um, and there were quite a few times, and, and I suppose that's what impressed me about him because I don't usually associate defensive awareness with him. Um, and actually, I, I thought he did that pretty well. I don't want to go overboard on the performance because I think it was probably in reality a seven, seven and a half out of ten performance but compared to what everybody else put in it really it really stuck out um so had everyone been performing at an you know a better level it might just have looked you know okay fine and uh, and and that that can still be quite encouraging the fact that he's playing you know a position he hasn't you know he's he's what like fifth in line here so i know he's played in central midfield before but it's obvious to this point that the manager hasn't you know the manager doesn't use him there unless he absolutely has to. So, you know, there there, there could be something interesting there. Um, I don't think there's enough evidence here to say, oh, that's it. He's cracked it. He's a central midfielder. Let's do this. Um, because, like you say, he he's fairly guilty on the second goal as well. Maybe he's got an argument that he thought Francis Cochrane had the situation under control a bit. Um, but you're right that. The, the fact that he didn't run back for that second goal, you know, that is because he'd been doing that for the whole game and actually for the for the whole game before that, that's one of the things he'd been doing really well is getting back and making those interceptions and nicking the ball off people. Um, I did quite like the way he used the ball as well um, in terms of, 
I think he spread it around quite nicely. And I think maybe there's an element to which on the ball, central midfield does suit him because um, you just get a little bit more space in front of you. It's not always... Because usually when he plays on the right, it's like, right, there's the fullback. What am I in the team to do? I'm there to beat the fullback. So there's just a, a predictability, I suppose, about his game because he doesn't get much time to think. And it's, right, head down, I've got to try and beat this fullback. And sometimes it comes off and sometimes it doesn't. And you put a cross in, sometimes it hits the target and sometimes it doesn't. But there was more precision in his game. And, and maybe that's, that's something interesting. But like I say, I don't, I don't want to, you know, go overboard and say that he's definitely a central midfielder and that he solved a problem for us in there. I, I just thought on the day he was the best of a very bad bunch and perhaps there's something interesting to look at. Here's the problem with that. For me, and, and I don't disagree with anything you've said, but when Arsene Wenger arrived at Arsenal, one of the things that, that I think you could say about him is he had a very clear idea of how he wanted his team set up, how he wanted to play, mm. where a player should be. He buys Thierry Henry. He's a wide forward. Nope, you're a striker. You're going to excel at striker. Go play there. Go set records for the Arsenal. And he did. And he, you know, he takes these players and he knows where they go. And if you look at Arsene Wenger now, Francis Coughlin is only in the squad by accident. His Arsenal career was gone, and it was happy f accident that there were enough people injured that he had to play, and all of a sudden Arsene goes, oh, uh, he's a defensive midfielder. I didn't know that. Okay, he can play there. Alexis Sanchez is bought. He gets one game at striker. He's shifted out to the wing. We wind up in a crisis of center forwards to start the season, and Alexis Sanchez plays striker, and what do you know? He's good at it, so he gets a run in the side. Theo Walcott, he says, oh, he's no longer a wide player. He's a striker comes into the season as a wide player and starts to excel there. I mean, I could go on and on with examples of this. Lucas Podolski was bought to be the, you know, the striker to replace Van Persie, and, and that didn't work out. And, you know, Oxlade-Chamberlain had got multiple chances to play like crap on the wing and winds up, hey, look, maybe he's a central midfielder after all, which I know mm. the manager has alluded to in the past. But what I'm driving at is there seems to be a cl pretty clear pattern developing now and paul i'll get back to yeah. him in just a second i'm just gonna let tim get one word in here um about this does it concern you at all that there seems to be a pattern developing of players sort of acquiring roles almost haphazardly or by accident or in contravention we we've talked on this pod about arson saying shack is a box-to-box -box midfielder and then saying no he's not a box-to-box -box midfielder mm. has he lost his feel for where he wants his players or for, for knowing where they should be and how to set them up to be the most successful? Yeah, yeah, I think so, um, to be honest. I think, you know, it's kind of a squad game nowadays and he was never a squad manager. He was a team manager. You look at the teams he was successful with, there was very little rotation other than, you know, maybe one of the front positions or, you know, he'd throw on strikers. But really there was there was a clear idea of what a first eleven was. Um, in most of his successful teams and you can't really do that nowadays and I think he's accepted that you can't really do that but he, he's not quite as good at managing a squad as he is managing a team and it's probably because maybe he's a little bit indecisive and it is a bit, you know, he hoards players he likes and then he tries to work out how to use them afterwards and I think that plays into some of what we see, players not having a clear idea of what they're meant to do and that that doesn't just have te tactical repercussions, that has mental repercussions. Because like I was saying earlier, what Conte's done is not just a tactical triumph. He's got his players to believe in that system. And, you know, he had to, he had to step on a lot 
of toes for that um, to make that work. He had to drop John Terry. He had to drop Fabregas. He had to sell Ivanovic. He sold John Obi Mikel, who's been there for 11 years. He's done it with very, very little fanfare and very little resistance. And that tells you that his players believe in what they're meant to be doing. Well, you know and why? Because he didn't do it like a Mourinho just to basically send no. a message. He did it with a no, tactical no. End, end result in mind. I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm never going to play Juan Mata and I'm going to ship him out because I'm an asshole. It's another thing to yeah. say, I have a system and we need players that fit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, um, that's one of the things we just really don't have. And we just, you know, I know Paul and I spoke about this a lot last season as well in terms of, you know, in our squad, um, in, in the last couple of seasons, there have been starting 11s he's put together that have been pretty good. We had that pretty good period where Ramsey was on the right, Walcott was up front, Coquelin and Cazorla behind them. Bellerin came into the team and it all kind of came together a little bit by accident. And that first 11 was really good. But then you take one cog out and instead of like a guy who can come in and do exactly the same job, you get a completely different type of player come in and it completely changes the emphasis of, yep. of what you're doing. And at the beginning of this season, I think we put together, we'd started to put together a decent starting 11. And, you know, we had a Wobi, Walcott and Alexis and that looked like a really good front three. And Ozil was scoring and, you know, but then you take out one player and he's replaced by somebody who does something completely different. And that's, that's the thing about the squad building. I, I kind of, I kind of like this squad, but at the same time, I, I don't think Arson really knows how to use it. And I think what exacerbates that is that he doesn't like the confrontation that perhaps goes with making the big decisions in terms of saying, do you know what? You're a good footballer, but you don't fit what I want. So that's which is it. which is weird because he 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 came into the league with that. Ruthlessness, yeah. Um, and when you when you think of the pic, the stories told of uh, Sir Alex, and he'd be planning who was going to play three weeks out. Welbeck's going to play in that game, and he's going to play the one next weekend. But he's not playing tonight. Giggs is playing tonight, but somebody else. But he's not playing next. You know, and okay, he he was maybe the other end of the spectrum, but a squad should understand that they're not being dropped. They're just not playing in this lineup tonight for this game because I have a plan. That was the difference. Ferguson was able to say, I'm not playing you tonight. And whether he said it or not, the implication was because I have a plan for you next week or the game after that or for the Champions League match where, you know, I'm going to play Nanny and, you know, that whole concept. And that's just when, when Arsene doesn't play, or play you, you're dropped. Yeah, and, is, and I think it doesn't have to be that way. You could make the argument that under Ferguson, players felt they needed to keep him happy, and I think under Arsene Wenger, he feels he needs to keep the players happy, um, and that dynamic is problematic. Paul, I, I want to sub you back in here because I did kind of leave you on the sidelines for a bit there. So, uh, just a couple of things quickly, and the first is just with with respect to Mustafi and Koscielny, who I think struggled on the day, but you know I watched them. And I don't see anything different than I've seen with Murtisacker. I don't see anything different than I've seen with Chambers, with, I mean, you, you can go back, Vermaelen, uh, you know, I would say Squalachi, Sylvester, those, those guys were just horrible. But 
Um, but it's interesting you mentioned Scalacci because this was going to be part of my answer. I, I see where you're going with this. Well, uh, Scalacci said it's a really difficult club to be a centre back yes, at because yes. of how we play. Yes, and so I, this is what I wanted to, to ask you: is you know the defenders, the central defenders for Arsenal are always defending in crisis mode. It's always crisis mode. It's very rarely the game's in front of them. They have support. There's a guy. They between don't get the... called out to get a cat out of a tree. No, exactly. They get called out for five alarm fires constantly. And I think the same can be said of of the goalkeeper at Arsenal too, who maybe doesn't face the most shots, but when he faces situations, they're they're usually panic stations. Do you think just the strain psychologically? I mean, one of the hardest things about top level sport, and you hear this from a lot of athletes, is just the focus, the mental concentration, you know, Arson talks about mental strength. I don't think it's strength. I think it's mental fatigue that happens from having to be so focused for so long. Do you think the problem is we just ask our center backs to put out so many fires that they're going to start to make mistakes because the situations they're put in are so taxing, not just physically, but mentally? Yeah, I th- a few things there. I think we write checks that uh, we can't cash in terms of attacking you know we want a really attacking team if you want to play this way arson you just need better players and i agree with tim it's it's one of the best squads but you need a fucking good squad and a fucking good 11 no matter who's put out there to be able to play that attacking and not get hit on the counter look you see it with Um, city but paul i mean just really quickly you can attack brilliantly all you want but if you can only defend with two guys in your half eventually even bad teams will find a way to carve out a presentable chance yeah and then second point i'd make is the midfield i mean it's everything right why are alexis and ozil frustrated and looking like they quit because they're getting no fucking service they've got nothing to work with they feel like fools out there. They, they, they look at Costa and Hazard outplaying them, outperforming them, and they're like, they just feel, i got nothing to work with here. Um, defensively, the same. I mean, that's uh, not so much in, just in terms of a physical screen. It's, again, the game management, the game intelligence, the picking the passes, the controlling the screen. I mean, we had... I don't know, 55, 58% possession. Now, maybe some of that was them gifting it as we chased the game a little bit. But we had always had more than 50% possession. Uh, if we'd had a really clever midfield, we our, our defense has a chance to look good and our attack has a chance to stay involved. Uh, I mean, it, we, we continue to not have huge injury troubles anymore, but still, we don't have Welbeck for 90 minutes uh we have ramsey it costs us a couple of games till he gets good then he gets good we lose him um so you know there's that side of the thing you know losing bellerin he hasn't been fit or good for a few games uh but we get him back into this one and he gets polax and you got gabriel who i think we would all say has done quite well but Against Chelsea, where your chances are going to be on the wings, but also where your danger is going to be, your your fullbacks and your midfield pairing is the difference between how big the check your right is versus what's in the the uh, bank account mm-hmm. from a defensive standpoint. Yep. And we're just we're just loading up, rolling the dice. That's why we had enough chances to score a couple of goals. On the other hand, you also know 
they would have just scored another one if they needed it. Yeah. Uh, Paul, I'm going to give you just a quick hypothetical. My hypothetical is this. Talent and squad construction, ultimately, just amassing talent, is how you stay in the top four in the Premier League. I mean, that's not universally true, but overall, I think your most talented sides are the ones that are going to wind up in the top four. But the big games domestically and in Champions League are where the coaching starts to stand out. Arsene Wenger builds teams that can absolutely wallop the dross of the Premier League. And that's proven. Over the last 10 years when we've supposedly been in a slump, his record against the bottom half of the league is phenomenal, brilliant, and it's kept us top four. But the last 34 against Spurs, Liverpool, United City, and Chelsea, one six, drawn 15, lost 13. In the Champions League, we know the record there. Some really poor second-place finishes in the group and some bad eliminations. Some, some, to be fair, against great teams. Some, like the one against Monaco, really hard to swallow. Is, is the big game record and the Champions League record the clearest sign that we have that while this manager amasses talented squads and can still recruit well, he can't coach well enough to win the big games and, and to get us over the hump? I think ultimately you'd have to say that. I do think he... And I get, by the way, I know that's not a conclusion you want to draw or any of us want to draw, but I think no. for a team that, that does finish top four every year, you'd think we'd almost accidentally have a better record in those big games. You would. Um, I think... Here's the thing. I, I still think there's mileage in his approach if he'd go and spend the dollars and make sure he had top quality in each position. position. But he's kind of... He's constraining himself in so many ways. He's not being all tactic-y. He's not going for a balanced team. He's going for an attacking philosophy, an attacking approach. Uh, without, but he's not pulling it, putting enough bullets in the chamber? He's not. Uh, and even if he has an 11 that can do it, with our injury record, which he knows about, it might be a mystery to all of us why, but with an injury record like that... Um, you know, he just constrains himself. And then the midfield, it just makes no sense because he couldn't even tell you what two players he could put out there that are top level as a pairing. Yeah, I mean, do we have any pairing that anybody at the club, including the manager, would say, these are the two, as a combination, these are as good as anybody in the league. And, the fact and this that has we been don't. a few years. But the fact that we don't maybe is the biggest sign there is that the whole system needs to change. If you can't point to two guys and say these two together will make a two-man midfield work, and hell, even saying, and if those two go down, these two will, then you have to have a yeah. system that does. Um, yeah. There's Tim, no concept for the midfield. Tim, Arsene Wenger's football is jazz, um, and jazz is free-flowing, and it's not detail-oriented. Not that I'm a jazz musician. Are we just in an age of more programmatic football? Are we in an age now where at the top level the details are just too important, too focused on, too controlled, too pre-planned and studied and and one percent marginal gains and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, is I mean, I know we have this data company and all that, but at the end of the day, is is mm. Arsene Wenger's express yourself jazz coaching tactic just unable to compete with the the level of detail that his his counterparts at the big clubs are using to approach matches? Maybe a little bit, and maybe some of the time um, Arsene spends doing on those other things that other managers don't do um, in this day and age. 
because like they're spending paying it. 300 employees at the club and things like that yeah yeah um so maybe there's a bit of that um but i also think that maybe if it was better jazz it, it might work um yeah. not to torture the analogy too much but I, I i don't think so like yeah jazz is about like you know um uh, improvisation and the rest of it but you know to paul's point you have to be really good to play jazz um an average musician can't just get up on a stage and start strumming or tooting away you have to be really good to do it um so I suppose I'm agreeing a little bit with Paul there. So I, I think there's just basically, it, yes, I think it's probably harder than ever to do that. Um, but well, I mean, we could be so time, massively outspent that the odds that we're ever going to be able to out-talent our way to a title are pretty, pretty unrealistic, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. We've got enough individual talent, like you say, to, to make sure that we, we finish in the top four. Um, but yeah, I... I'm not, I'm not going to definitely say like the jazz thing doesn't work because you know all these things go in cycles basically and probably in a couple of years someone will come along and they'll do it and they'll win the league because they do it really really well um, because what you get you know you get one person does something and I think we probably all accept that in the kind of modern age Guardiola's come along and that's changed the way people look at coaching so to to more or lesser extents, people are kind of taking the Guardiola blueprint. But, you know, the next guy that comes along and speeds up the evolution of football coaching might might be, he might be a Wengerite, he might be a jazzer, but he might just do it really, really well. So I, I'm hesitant to say that it, it can't work. I think it's, at the moment, it's probably less likely to work. But um, even if we do go for the kind of the freestyle approach, we still need to do it better. We still need to do things like tell Alex Awobi and Mesut Ozil who is supposed to be tracking back. Like, you know, you, you can you can do the basics and do a bit of jazz, you know? Like, do the, do the jazz when you get the ball and you're in the last third of the pitch, but the rest of it, you know, you can't improvise on stuff like that, on detail, like who's picking up who and who does what off the ball. Um, you do the expressive stuff when you're attacking and when you're on the ball, and that's absolutely fine. Um, I'm great with seeing Urza and Alexis play one-twos and swap positions and, and the rest of it. But, um, yeah, I don't want us doing jazz in our back four and no. in our defensive midfield. And I don't want, you know... Um, two of our players looking at each other going, oh, you're supposed to be playing that note. But I thought you were, oh, right. Maybe we should have spoken about this before in the dressing room or on the training ground or something. So I, I, I just think whatever, because you can't, you can't make Arsene change his spots. You can't make him become something he's not. So I'd like him to do what he's good at better, basically. And because I, because I just don't think he is at the moment. Um, and I just think it's because he's hoarding players and he's trying to work it out later. And, you know, it's, it's like it's like he's trying to build a plane that's already in the air. Um, and that just costs you too many points to win the league because the margins are, are far too small. Yeah, I think that's exactly and it, and right. And it kills everybody. Yeah, go, go ahead, Paul. I was just going to say, and it kills everybody. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, 
I, look, I... In I, the plane. <laughs> okay. The plane. Yes. Everybody's going to die. You're missing the big picture here. We might lose <laughs> a few games, but we're all going to die. Well, yes, eventually. That, that is true. <laughs> um, you scared me for a minute. Like, do you know something? I should, is this specific? I'm, just better at, I'm better at doing analogies than absorbing Tim's analogies. That's it. Fair enough. Um, so, all right. Well, look, uh, let's start to wrap up. And I, I want to give you each just a shot at this. And, Paul, I'll start with you. I mean, where do we go from here? I, you know, We're all going to die. All right. That covers it. <laughs> I mean, I got to level with you, man. The way things are going in the world, like, you're, you're scaring me just a little bit. Like, can, can, you, can you back off of that just a notch and, yeah, right. and give me, like, an actual footballing perspective on where we go from here? Okay. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we're a bit fucked. Here's what I'd love to do, and this is too ballsy and is putting too much. I'd love to play Ainsley Maitland-Niles because uh, we need a Hail Mary here, right? Uh, I know I can hear all the voice saying, oh, he's too young. Oh, he's too this. Oh, he's not proven. Oh, it was only against only. Fuck. What have we got? Um, because the Ainsley Maitland Niles that I've projected onto that boy would have, he would have caught Hazard for starters, right? Uh, pace wise, uh, his recovery speeds, his ability to adapt to other players and if, if it turns out he's not that good, that's the kind of player. What you can project onto him is the kind of player we need in that spot. We need Chaka back, which I guess we get after the next game. Hopefully we can survive Hull. Though, didn't they, who did they get a draw against recently? They just beat United Liverpool. Or something? They just beat Liverpool. Oh, fuck. Yeah. yeah, just yeah. our luck. They're hitting full force. Anyway, um, Welbeck. Uh, you know... Uh, I, I might have been in the mood to argue with Tim a bit in that I think Welbeck's a bit extraordinary uh, in terms of what he brings um, and goes well beyond the... I, I, I take Tim's point, uh, and maybe I, I'm jumping on it the wrong way. But you know what I mean? When he comes on, he has a presence, even when he's not 100%. I mean, his first game back, he, change, he changes that, that uh, dynamic. So you bring in Welbeck, you get Perez back, who I think is a, a very subtle, clever player. They got to stay fit. You know, I love Ramsey after he's been back for four games and he's played in. But if he doesn't stay fit, I'm at the point where I prefer him not to be instrumental to what we do. Um, we've got to find some pairing. And right now, given that we have no pairings, you can you can say rubbish to my Ainsley Maitland Niles, and you're very probably right. But nobody's got a better no, idea I, that I've heard. Let me say this: I won't say rubbish to it. I think the manager's in a really tough spot now because yep. top four is going to be a battle. I think that's pretty clear, and the margin is is going to be razor thin. And so he can stick with guys like Coughlin and yeah. El Nenny and uh, maybe Oxlade yeah, Chamberlain I, and Shaka. And guess what? probably get the points he needs against the bottom half. Yeah. Our title chase is over. So the question yeah. is, what's the upside of playing Maitland-Niles now? Well, because I don't think... Look, I agree. If, if he wants to get top four, he should play it safe. I'm looking for something a bit more than that. Well, there's nothing I, I left li this season to there chase. Are. Of course there is. You think the title's still on? No. <laughs> but, we, but we could have a good run in 
we could get to the final of the FA Cup and see what happens, and we could actually beat Bayern. Now, we won't, but you're asking me, if you're asking me what can we do, you can't then say... No, that that's no, fair. No, no you're, you're absolutely yeah. right. So, I, I, I will say this. So I think my against... life depended on going deep in that competition, mm-hmm. and I was going to look at a Hail Mary approach. Welbeck, Perez... Um, uh, Alexis up front, Ozil, depending on the game, pushed to one side uh, or played through the middle, depending on whether how strong their midfield is and how much trouble our two is going to get. I would have a deep look at whether I thought Ainsley Maitland... Not, now, you're risking his career and our season, but fuck it. Um, it could traumatize him. Pair him up with Chaka. Um, not for every game, but see if you can play him in so that he gets good. Because that guy, if he follows through on what he hinted at doing, can handle the press. And Chaka needs somebody beside him who can handle the press. Does it, we, we don't have a pairing, so that's I, my best I'll, pair. I'll say this. I don't disagree with what you're saying against like a Bayern, where the odds are we're going to lose anyway, and we need to do yep. something that can change that outcome. Or even yep. in the FA Cup, where you say it's a great way to blood this guy and get it, maybe get us a run in that. I think the funny thing is in the Premier League, where we need to beat up on the dross to stay top four, and we know that's kind of yeah, what we, we specialize in. We can use in. other guys. Yep, yeah, I agree. Um, now, I say that on the heels of losing at home to Watford. I, I realize sure. that. Um, all right, so, Tim, I'll finish with you. I mean, just two things really quickly. One is just what was the mood like among the away support after the match, and you know, is it starting to get pretty grim with respect to the manager again? Yeah, yeah, there was, you know, there was quite a... Um, a, a big chorus of, uh, of "We want Wenger out" at the end, which personally, well, I'm, you know, no one ever likes hearing that. Um, I, I, I don't like hearing that at places like Stamford Bridge. I, th- I think I find that, of course, people have the right to do it, and you know, they, they absolutely have the right to do that if they want. But to me, you know, Stamford Bridge, White Hart Lane, that that just feels like airing dirty washing um i didn't particularly like that but like i say that's 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 up to other people it's their choice but yeah it, it was pretty i'd i'd say the uh, the atmosphere was about 80 minutes of resignation and then the last 10 minutes yeah there were there were those those pockets again and and that that happens at pretty much away every away game where we don't win or um or where we play badly and um, I, I think that will just continue to be the case as long as the manager's there. Um, to just slightly row back a little bit on the question you asked, Paul, I, I found that really interesting what you were saying about Maitland-Niles because I had a conversation with um, the guy I sit with and I said that I thought that Wenger maybe might have thought about starting him against Chelsea. Um and I think, and I, I was saying that I think he might get in the team or see a, at least a bit of action by the end of the season for the same reason Awobi did last year, because we kind of, and at the, a very similar stage, actually, Awobi yeah. came in at Barcelona away. Um, that was his first start outside of the FA Cup. And that was really when it was all to shit. And we needed to do something a bit different, um, as was uh, Bellerin and Coquelin and Ospina the season before he has shown a flair for this um, Arsene Wenger there was that time as well he dropped for Marlon and Chesney after a North London derby so basically when it gets to brass tacks and the shit hits the wall 
he's not averse to making that kind of um, fairly risky move. So I would not be surprised at all if in the next couple of games Maitland-Niles starts to see a little bit more action to see what he can do with him. Um, and yeah, the, the conversation I had was that I had, a, I had on fr- I think Friday night, I had a little feeling he might start. Um, but then I thought uh, ultimately he might not choose to do that in a game like this. But that I, 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 don't, I don't know why, um, but you know, the spidey senses were tingling and I was thinking that, that maybe Arsene thought about it um, at some point. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that before the end of the season. But yeah, to answer your question, it was, it was. I think everyone knew what was going to happen. It was quite resigned, and then the last few minutes, you know, um, as always in this situation, it it did it did get pretty ugly. But I think we're we're quite used to that at away matches now. Yeah, and you know the funny thing, I I actually thought that the anger after this match was a little misplaced, and I think it was genuinely just the the overflow from the Watford match. Because I think if we had beaten Watford midweek and then this had happened, people would be frustrated by it, but there'd be a lot mm. more excusing of it based on the injuries in midfield and based on you know, getting a little unfortunate with the Bellerin goal and what happened from there. And I'm not saying people wouldn't have been frustrated and disappointed. Yeah, yeah. But I, I and think... good. Yeah. yeah oh, well, and they're really, team. really good. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's no yeah. shame going to Stanford Bridge when they're on pace for 94, 96 points, whatever the hell it is, and losing... But losing at home to Watford going into that game really killed the momentum, the energy, the spirit, and ultimately the title challenge. So just as a capper, I think now the the question is, do these players have the fight in them for a top four battle? The one worrying thing to me is towards the tail end of the Watford game and the Chelsea game, and I know we don't want to be armchair psychologists, Alexis Sanchez looks like he's just kind of fucking done. (laughs) Um, and I guess he has that way about him, but I wonder if if we could start to see some petulance in some of these players, especially because Ramsey and 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 uh, Alexis and Ozil all have contract situations coming up. As does the manager. Um, it could be very destabilizing, and they're going to have to pull their shit together pretty quick. Um, but the thing that scares me is with the title gone, and if we take a beating at the hands of Bayern, it's going to be hard to rally the troops for the the top four challenge. Um, and that's really what's ahead of us. So we'll see. Let's leave it there. We've gone on quite long enough on a miserable occasion. Hopefully uh, we can come back and do an hour and 20 minutes on the 6-0 victory over Hull at the weekend. That'd be brilliant. So uh, you can find Tim on Twitter at Stilberto. Thanks, Tim. Pleasure. <laughs> Was it? Uh, and you can find Paul on Twitter at Posing in My Pants. Paul, as always, thank you. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Um, give us five-star review uh, and then shit the bed in the comments you know that's the best way to do it uh we will be back after hull and hopefully we will be much cheerier and uh more concise but in either case uh have a great rest of the week if we don't all die between now and then like paul suggested we will see after hull I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. 
Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.